right, glad to be back with you guys. I uh, heard Tim Cartwright did a great job last week. I've heard a lot of good feedback, so appreciate him. Uh, he gave you a nice little break from Ecclesiastes by looking at the crucifixion, looking at the Gospel of John, and it's also a preview because we're going to jump into the Gospel of John in the new year, so that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, we'll move through Ecclesiastes, finish that up. We'll kind of do focus on Christmas time, the birth of Jesus over December, and then start the Gospel of John in the new year, so we're looking forward to that. Um, and I'm thankful for him. We're going to continue our Ecclesiastes series now, so if you have a Bible, go ahead and crack it open right to the middle. It's where Ecclesiastes can be found. It's right after Psalms and then Proverbs, then you'll find Ecclesiastes. And if you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the black Bibles you'll see under the chairs there. You can grab one of those, open that one up, um, and we'll be in chapters, going to cover a lot of territory. You're probably going to think I'm crazy, but we're going to do 9, 10, 11, and part of 12 tonight. So I am actually going to kind of just skip chapter 10, so I can't, I can't lie. I'm going to skip a big chunk there uh, of 10 and 11. Uh, but we're going to get some of the major themes of 9, 10, 11, and 12 as we move through this section. Um, and just to review, Ecclesiastes, a couple of weeks left, right? Ecclesiastes is this very earthly perspective of building a theology from what we can see and taste and touch and experience. And so a lot of his focus even today in this passage is going to feel very limited, and I just want to remind you that he believes in an afterlife. He believes in the spiritual reality that is more than what we can see, but he's trying to focus our attention on how to make the most of this life that we're ex- experiencing now. Um, and so throughout Ecclesiastes, he said, he said this life is very short. Um, in the CSB, for this study, just to confuse you more, I've been using a different translation than the Black Bibles, just to kind of keep you crazy, right? Um, but also to show you that there are a lot of different words for this. In the ESV, the major theme word is vanity. It's like an emptiness. In this version that I've been reading, the major theme word is futility. You're frustrated. You can't get everything you want out of life. And then in the NIV, the one I grew up reading as a new Christian, I read that version for 20 years. The word is meaningless, and all of those different English words are pointing to this Hebrew word havel, which is mist or vapor, and he reiterates that in the Hebrew with wind. He says it's like a mist, it's a vapor, you can't hold on to it, it's, it's gone, it blows away, you're out of control, and because of that, he hits that theme again and again, he comes to the end, where we'll be next week, and he says, because of this out of controlness and, and the reality that you can't grab onto life, you should fear God and keep his commandments. The way Jesus would summarize that is you should love God and love other people, right? So take care of the main things in life because life is short and it's just going to blow by. So trust God and and do what he says. And then there's this secondary theme that he keeps hitting on here that really has kind of surprised me. There are these things you study uh, when you're preparing for a series and then when you actually get into it, you're like, oh, that's that's a bigger deal than I thought it was going to be. You know, like it just keeps coming up and that's joy. Joy in daily life. He just hammers it again and again. And so really, if I could summarize, he's saying this fearing God and keeping his commandments, the big questions, looks like daily joy. Looks like enjoying whatever lot he has given you in life and enjoying that. Because you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. This week, we're going to call it joy versus death. Joy versus death. We kind of hit on these themes a couple of weeks ago. The theme of death, he's going to hit it real hard here. He's going to say Man, there's all kinds of death. You can't escape it. You never know when it's coming. It's going to surprise you, so rejoice. And, of course, that kind of doesn't go together in our heads, so we're going to need some help, right? So hopefully he's going to help us as we move through this. So as I was thinking about the, just the surprise of death, I was remembering a movie I saw years ago. I think when I saw it, it had already been out for a while because it was a foreign, foreign film, so it kind of took a while for it to get known in America. But it's a movie called Run, Lola, Run. Anybody heard of this movie, Run, Lola, Run? It's a German movie, great movie. Um, And in Run, Lola, Run, it's kind of a tribute to this woman, Lola, just her passion and her energy. And of course, the movie is about her running, right? Run, Lola, Run. And she's running against time. She's racing against the odds. And she's trying to help her boyfriend who's in trouble with some gangsters. And she's trying to rescue him or help him get themselves out of this mess so he doesn't get killed, right? So they're running, they're running this race of life, and they're trying to get out of this trouble, and they're trying to not die. There's this one part of the movie that's really kind of shocking when they get some money. I think they, like, rob a store or something, so they can get enough money to pay back the gangster, you know. So I'm not endorsing everything that happens in the movie, right? Don't hold up a store. But they get this money, and then they meet on the street, and she's there, and he's there, and they're like, you know, it's like, happy ending, we did it. And then this truck just 
speeds through and just wipes him out. He's gone. Her boyfriend's gone. You're like, this, what? Right? You're like, that's not, I thought this was the happy ending. Like, what's going on here? And it's a bizarre movie. There's a lot of like resets and going back to the beginning and then doing it over again. So it's kind of a strange movie, almost like a video game, kind of reset, do-over kind of thing that takes place in the movie. But that image, that shock that I felt, I can remember um, talking about this with a professor who was like, yeah, a lot of times when people see that scene, they just laugh because it's so shocking. It's horrible, but it's it's almost like the Looney Tunes anvil on the head kind of just, I was not expecting that. So you laugh and then you feel guilty because you're like, well, the guy just died and you feel bad about it. Um, The author, sounds like I'm getting way off track, right? But trust me, (laughs) this connects. The author here is saying death just surprises us. It sneaks up on us. You have no control over it. You can be winning the race and then you lose the race. You can be doing great. And then you're dead, right? Like, we, just, we have no control over death and disease and the difficulties that we face in life. And so he says, the answer is not to just then give up. The answer is to run. The answer is to rejoice. The answer is to enjoy whatever lot God has given you in this life. So I'm going to start us just with chapter 9. As I said, we're going to kind of skip some of the middle section, which is largely short Proverbs, and then we'll come back to chapter 11 and 12 at the end. But starting in chapter 9, verse 1, Again, I'm reading a different translation than the Black Bibles right now. He says, Indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it all. The righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. So that's just a foundation setting the table for the whole thing. We're in God's hands. We have to make peace with trusting we're in God's hands. He says, People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. Everything is the same for everyone. There is one fate for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, for the clean the unclean for the one who sacrifices and the one who does not sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also for the one who fears an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There is one fate for everyone. So one ending, one uh, fate, one death for everyone. He's saying this is not really fair. In addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts while they live. After that, they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There is no longer a reward for them, because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, and their envy have already disappeared, and there is no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. Go, eat your bread with pleasure, and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works." Let your clothes be white all the time. Never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days. For that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. Whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there is no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol, the place of the dead, where you are going. Again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift Or the battle to the strong, or bread to the wise, or riches to the discerning, or favor to the skillful, rather time and chance happen to all of them. For certainly no one knows his time, like fish caught in a cruel net, or like birds caught in a trap, so people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. Saying the race doesn't go always to the fastest runner. Time, chance, randomness happens, death happens, you can't always control the outcome, death comes like a trap, you don't expect it. But again, he keeps coming back to this, what he said in verse 7, rejoice, enjoy, enjoy what God gives you. Take joy in whatever little things you can grab onto in this life. Um, he's taking us to the ultimate ending where he says, fear God, keep his commandments. Today, he's focusing on in the midst of death, rejoice, rejoice in a God who loves you. Your life is in his hands. As I said, this is hard for us to reconcile. This is like it doesn't go together in our brains. So I'm going to pray that the Spirit would help us, that the, the word would uh, affect our hearts tonight. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would teach us. You pr- uh, pray that you would meet us here. You'd, you'd help us. Um, we thank you that you teach us and talk to us. And we thank you that you care for us. Um, and we pray that you'd help us to have understanding hearts and minds. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big idea is joy, joy versus death. How can we have joy? And he's going to just kind of lay out multiple layers of, of how you can't really avoid death, right? So you can have to make peace with death and have joy anyway, even though death is coming. And so he talks in the first section that we already read about uh, death being universal. 
uh, meaning it's not something just for the bad guys. Death is for everybody, okay? And then he's going to talk about how death is sneaky, right? And that was what we read kind of towards the end of the reading. It just sneaks up on you. Um, You don't know when it's coming. You can't schedule it on your calendar. Death is going to surprise all of us. And then he's going to end, and this is where I'll come back later and read chapter 11 and part of 12. He's going to end with this concept that death is apocalyptic, which is kind of a $20 word, right? It's a Greek word for revelation, so we usually use the word apocalyptic to talk about like the end of the world. And so what I mean to say there is he's saying death really is terrible. Um, And as Christians, we need to make sure that as we learn to rejoice in the midst of difficulty, we don't fall off the cliff into saying, therefore, bad things are good, death is wonderful, we like it. No, he, he still is saying it's a tragedy in a biblical worldview. And he's going to paint the picture of it with apocalyptic language. He's going to use poetry where he mixes scenery towards the end of that section in 11 and 12 of like a city being destroyed. And he's going to say, that's what it's like when you get older, when your body starts to shut down. It's kind of like a city that got bombed or a city where the factory closed down and everybody left. It's like, that's kind of all of us are going to go through that in our, our personal lives. That's part of growing old. And we have to make peace with that process. So the first thing we're going to see is that death is universal. So we should rejoice anyway, but death is universal. We can't escape it. So verse 1, he set the stage for us, like how we can get our mind set. Uh, one thing, one piece of this is that our life is in God's hands. And that should be comforting to us. Um, I think the sovereignty of God can either be something that makes you mad or comforts you. And the biblical encouragement is that it would comfort you. That we don't really understand all the details. We don't get why we have to experience the pain we experience. And God doesn't always give us the answers. That really the whole book of Job is about that. Job never gets even as much information as we do. We get more information than Job does. But he has to rest and trust that God knows what he's doing. God is sovereign. And so he starts out in verse 1. He says, indeed, I took all this to heart and explained it. All the righteous, the wise, and their works are in God's hands. God is holding on to us. People don't know whether to expect love or hate. Everything lies ahead of them. So he's like, you don't, you don't know what to expect in life. And he's going to go on and actually become more negative than this. He kind of sounds neutral here. Don't know what's going to happen. And he's going to get more, new, uh, more negative and say some bad things will happen. Verse 2, everything is the same for everyone, for all. All face the same issue. It's universal in the sense that you can't escape this death, this suffering that is coming for us. There's one fate or one ending for the righteous and the wicked, for the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, the one who sacrifices, the one who doesn't sacrifice. As it is for the good, so also it is for the sinner. As it is for the one who takes an oath, so also it is for the one who fears an an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. There's one fate for everyone. So he's, he's saying this is unfair. He's not saying it's good, right? But death happens to the good guys, death happens to the bad guys. Um, Good people get cancer, bad people get cancer. Good people grow old and die, bad people grow old and die. He's saying it it happens to everybody, right? There's there's an evil to that in the sense of this is not fair, but again, we've seen throughout the book, it's not a closed system to Solomon. He's just trying to be as disciplined as possible to focus on the here and now. So he keeps focusing on this life, this reality, to help us grow in wisdom with what we have here and what we can see and taste and touch. But in other places, he says, there is, there is an, an afterlife, there is more, where God will make things right. There's a judgment coming, and he's referenced that in other places. But here he's saying, yeah, but the circumstances we live in are circumstances of death and pain and, and difficulty, disease. And it's equal for everybody. You, you don't get a pass if you're really religious. Now, I wish you did, right? Health and wealth gospel churches have this um, extra motivational tool that they use, which I think is unbiblical, but they're like, well, if you give enough money... And if you're a good enough person, if you have enough faith, then everything will just be rosy in your life, right? And then they manipulate people to give or to be more involved or to participate more in church life that way. I'm not allowed to do that because it's not in the Bible, right? Um, And so I would say you need to do good things because God loves you, not because it guarantees good results in this life. Now, the Bible associates doing good things with blessing. There's definitely... This just works out better. And this is the tension that Solomon keeps coming to. If you, if you review in your mind, as we studied Ecclesiastes, you go back and read it, he keeps saying, wisdom doesn't solve all your problems, but wisdom's better than foolishness. And so I would say, being righteous, living a good life, keeping your nose clean, doesn't solve all your problems, 
but it's definitely better than just giving yourself over to sin and rebellion. And so that's the tension that Solomon is kind of trying to, to pull on here. Death still happens. Disease still happens. This is really hard for us in our culture because of the cult of fitness that is currently kind of swirling around right now. Um, we know more than we've ever known about science and body health and all this stuff. And so because we know more, we, we pursue it more and we kind of start putting hope in that. Now, the, the Bible would encourage us to be healthy. I, I work out, not very much, you can tell, but I work out some, right? I try to eat healthy, um, try to pursue a healthy lifestyle. I think that's part of being a good steward of what God's given you. But you've got to be careful that you don't like teeter off the edge into it's everything. And if I'm healthy enough, I won't die, right? I can beat death. And he's saying, no, it doesn't matter how good you are. Like if you do all the right things, and really he's, he's hammering it in a spiritual sense too. Um, so not just health, but like if you're righteous and you make the proper temple sacrifices and you give to the church and you volunteer in the Sunday school program and you teach kids in the nursery and you open your home for hospitality, it's not going to enable you to avoid death and decay and disease. It's still, it's still there. It's still this, this evil that we're all exposed to. So a big question I've continued to keep coming back to in Ecclesiastes, because he does, that is, how do you want to be remembered when you die? Because you are going to die. So here's a blank tombstone. Fill in your tombstone, right? Like, what do you want to be said on your tombstone? Or better yet, just like, what do you want to be said at your funeral? How do you want to be remembered? Because you are going to die. I am going to die. And we don't know when it's going to happen, but we, we're all going to die. Cheery message, right? <laughs> he says, in addition, verse 3, I'm like halfway through verse 3. He says, in addition, the hearts of people are full of evil and madness is in their hearts. While they live, after that, they go to the dead. But there is hope for whoever is joined with all the living since a live dog is better than a dead lion. This one's crazy here. He's turning, he's turning things upside down. We don't get how like, weird this is, what he's saying, because we like dogs, right? Like, raise your hand if you like dogs. More than half. Okay, yeah, more than half of you like dogs. Um, so you know how like, you hear about other cultures eating cats, and you're like, oh, gross, that's so terrible, right? Well, that's how the Jews would have felt about you liking dogs, they would have thought you're a really nasty, disgusting person because you like dogs, right? So for them, dogs were more like rats, but bigger rats that could eat you, right? Like <laughs> dogs are like big, dirty animals that scavenge. That's, that's what they saw dogs as. They weren't domesticated to the same degree that we enjoy them in our culture. Um, you know, it's neither here nor there. It's a cultural difference, but it makes more sense to read this text to say, better for you to be a live rat than a dead lion. That, that would probably be a better way to to get the emotional impact of what he's saying here. Like better to be this wimpy, dirty creature that's living than to be a brave, awesome, triumphant lion that's dead. He's turning it upside down. Now, again, I know this is especially hard for those of you that are soldiers, right? Because you're like, that's, that's exactly backwards. That's not how I think. And again, all of wisdom is, is made to be taken kind of in context with other wisdom literature. So, of course, there are times to be a, a brave lion that goes to your death, right? Our, our Lord and Savior gave much. It's Veterans Day, right? We celebrate those who sacrifice for others. Jesus says, greater love hath no man than this to lay down his life for his friends. So of course, sacrifice and giving up your life is a noble thing, but here he's trying to emphasize life is good. Rotting in the ground is bad, right? Like he just, you don't want to be dead. You want to be alive. That's what he's trying to underscore here for us. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. Their love, their hate, their envy have already disappeared, and there's no longer a portion for them in all that is done under the sun. So again, he's, he's doing a focused study. He's like dialing up the microscope so you can really zero in on the reality of where we live now. Other places in Ecclesiastes, he's acknowledged there is an afterlife. There is a a judgment. There is more than just this world, but speaking in context of just this world, you don't want to die. And dying is a bad thing, and getting sick is a bad thing, and we do everything in our power to avoid that. That's why we wear seat belts, right? That's why we, we try to live healthy. We're trying to avoid death. We're trying to avoid disease as much as we can, but he's saying, ultimately, we can't avoid it. Ultimately, it's going to come to all of us, righteous and unrighteous. He, he kept emphasizing that in this section. So, Number one, do you think if you're righteous enough, you can beat the system? 
Or do you think if you're righteous enough, God owes you a better life? Uh, I had a dear friend whose uh, son almost died, discovered he had like childhood diabetes, but didn't discover it until he was a little older. Son almost died. It was a terrifying thing. And, and this guy had given much of his life to serving the Lord, and he really had to struggle with that. Like, God, I've given my life, and you do this? Like, like I've served you, and this is how you repay me? And he was very gracious to be transparent about that, right? Like, the Lord worked through that in his life. He's able to move on and not stay there. But I think we often feel that way, right? Like, God, I've, I've done what you've asked me to do, and now you, you give me this disease? Or now this this tragedy has come upon my family, you know, we, we struggle with this. And Solomon is just saying, we have to know that, that the playing field's not fair. N- another illustration of this, when we played, when I used to coach football a few years ago with my son's team, uh, we had a field that if it rained too much, there would be these little ditches that would wash out, right? Like we would go fill them back in with dirt and sand and the grass would start to grow, but if we would have a really bad rain, it would just like wash out. And so we had a playing field with little dips where people could twist their ankles, right? So just the reality of it was that field was not fair. And we would walk the opposing team around and be like, okay, someone's going to get hurt. This field is not fair. Do you want to play or not, right? Like we could forfeit the game, but, or we could go ahead and play just knowing this field is not fair. It's not, okay. it's not a level playing field. And that's what Solomon's saying here. Like we don't get a level playing It's not fair. We all have to face death and disease and brokenness. I think another important concept here in the universality of death and disease is that it's not always a specific punishment for your sin or your parents' sin. Jesus pointed this out in the Gospels. Um, There's a couple of places where Jesus talks about this in John chapter 9 and Luke chapter 13. It's really interesting, and I just discovered this as I was looking up these cross-references. In both places, he references this town called Siloam. So I need some of you, like Bible researchers, to go and figure that out, why they're both in Siloam. But anyway, two different little passages in two different Gospels. In John chapter 9, they, they passed by this guy that was born blind. A lot of you are familiar with the story. And the disciples say, Jesus, why is this guy blind? Is it because of his sin or his parents' sin? That was the automatic understanding, right? And I think we still go there a lot. We think if something happens bad in my life, if I'm sick, it's maybe something I did. And Jesus was like, no, it wasn't, it wasn't his parents' sin. It wasn't his sin. It was really just so I'd have an opportunity to be glorified and heal him. That was the purpose for this. A lot of times we don't know the purpose. We're not told the purpose. Again, the book of Job, Job doesn't really know all that's going on behind the scenes. We don't always know what's happening in in the midst of our suffering. We just trust the God who holds our life in his hands. Um, I think another helpful perspective is like a story. Have you ever been reading a story and you love this author, but the chapter you're reading, you're like, I don't don't like this chapter, right? But you keep going because you're like, but he's a good author, so we'll see it through. Have Have you ever had that experience? That happens in our life all the time, right? Like you might be in chapter seven of your life and you're like, "Mm -mm, I don't know. This is not how I wanted this to go, right? And I don't like chapter eight either, but you, you have to hold on because your life is in his hands and you trust the author. You may not like the chapter, but you, you can trust the author and therefore trust the story of where he's ultimately taking you. And so we have to understand not all death and suffering in our life is a immediate lightning bolt for a particular sin in my life. My parents, my parents' life as well. Another place where Jesus talks about this, <coughs> excuse me, it's Luke 13. Um, Luke 13, these people talk to, to him about some people that had gotten killed by Pilate, who's the, the governor at the time in Israel. These people got killed, and Jesus said, do you think that these Galileans were more sinful than all the other Galileans because they suffered? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you'll also perish. So this is where it gets confusing. See, Jesus says, no, they didn't get killed because of any particular sin in their life, but if you don't repent, you will perish, right? So there's this tension, biblically, that we are all under judgment. When a bad thing happens in our life, it could just be a general, vague brokenness of the world. The world is fallen. That's usually the word we use for that, right? The word, the world is fallen because of Adam and Eve's sin. We contribute to that. We don't necessarily make it better. We often make it worse, but there's just brokenness out there, and if something bad happens into your life, you can just say, that's just the world I live in. You don't have to, you don't have to be racked with guilt, like, oh, what did I do, and why did this happen to me? And you don't have to wrestle through that and think, if, well, if I can figure this out, then I can undo the badness in my life. You just say, God, what does faithfulness look like for me in the midst of this tragedy I'm going through right now? So Jesus says that it wasn't their sin, but remember, we all need to repent. Like, we are all sinners. 
So that's the tension there. It's not necessarily my sin that causes a bad thing to happen, but I've got sin, right? Like I have sin I need to repent from. We all need to be repenters, and we're all under judgment in general. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. We all deserve judgment, and our only hope is the gospel. Just to make sure that people get this, then Jesus reiterates it with another story. There are some people that died in Salome, this mystery city. Um, This tower in Salome fell on people. And Jesus said, do you think they were more sinful than all the other people who live in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as well. So he's articulating this concept where, like on the one hand, if a bad thing happens in your life, you're not like, oh no, what did I do? God hates me, right? You relate to God through the grace and forgiveness that we have in Christ. And you say, God, what does it look like to be faithful in the midst of this death, disease, and brokenness I'm facing? But the other extreme would be, oh, well, bad things don't, you know, don't happen for that specific reason. So therefore, none of us are really guilty. None of us have any judgment hanging over us. No, he's like, no, we all need to repent. We all need to be repenters. We all have sin that we need to repent of. But you don't want to take that to the extreme where every time a bad thing happens, you're like, oh, this is, this is a particular punishment for this particular sin. Okay, I think I've beat that horse to death. The second point is that death is sneaky. We'll see this in the second half of, of chapter 9, the section I already read. And he's going to give, starting in verse 7, the big joy verse here. So death is sneaky, but rejoice. He says, verse 7, go eat your bread with pleasure and drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already accepted your works. Um, a lot of the commentators would, would say this is, or do say, this is the most Pauline, like the Apostle Paul, or the most New Testament grace-oriented verse in all of Ecclesiastes. It's like, go rejoice, because God has already accepted you, right? It's finished. It's settled. Now, Solomon didn't know everything about Jesus and the cross and all that Jesus was going to do for us, but he knew that the God of the Old Testament was a saving God who gave grace to his people, who redeemed a people that didn't deserve it, who was absolutely holy, but through the sacrificial system, he demonstrated to his people that I'm a God who allows you to come into my presence through the sacrifices of others. And that ultimate sacrifice is found in Jesus. So he's, he's telling them the story constantly throughout the Old Testament. I'm a saving God. I give you what you don't deserve. I'm loving. I'm redeeming. I'm going to rescue you out of slavery. I'm this good God who shows great mercy. He shows the sacrificial system that shows that they need payment to be made for their sins. And then Jesus is the full fruition of that, that, that makes all of that make sense. Jesus took your place. Jesus lived the life you couldn't live He died the death that you and I deserve to die. He rose from the dead, proving once and for all that he's conquered sin and death. So so through that dynamic of Jesus and the cross and his death and resurrection for us, we know that God has accepted us. So to to put it in this framework of him talking about death and us thinking maybe maybe if I do enough good things, I won't be under judgment anymore, he says, no, it's, it's because of what he's done. That's why you're accepted. So here in verse 7, he's saying, go eat your bread with pleasure. Rejoice, for God has accepted your works. He says, let your clothes be white all the time and never let oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with a wife you love all the days of your fleeting life, which has been given to you under the sun all your fleeting days, for that is your portion in life and in your struggle under the sun. So these are just general phrases about enjoying life. Um, Go eat and drink. Talks about drinking wine, so just a little sidebar because um, it's confusing, because we all grew up in different religious backgrounds. Wine is generally seen as, as something to celebrate and a good thing in the Bible. It's also seen as something you need to be careful about, right? Alcohol can overpower us. So the Bible has kind of a tension there. I would say it's very parallel to fire and sex, two other things that are great gifts given to humanity that we are to be very guarded and careful about as well. And so wine, alcohol kind of falls into that same category. For some people, you know, because of your struggles and because of what it does to you, it's safer to just not touch it, right? But for other people, uh, they don't have quite the same temptation. They don't have the same draw there, and they can enjoy it in moderation and celebrate. And so he's just, he's just kind of giving a smattering of different ways that you can celebrate life. Eat. Enjoy bread, right? We don't eat bread in my family. My wife is gluten-free, right? So we're not going to do that one. Um, but there are little things here that are just symbolic, right? Just like enjoy the good things, enjoy your daily life, normal life. Go live your normal life with joy because of God's 
grace to, to you. He says, let your clothes be white all the time. Don't, don't take this too literally, right? Um, I don't think anyone in here, I think you're wearing a white shirt. Like two people in here are wearing a white shirt, right? The rest of us are in sin because we're wearing colored shirts. No, that's not what he means. It's just, again, it's symbolic. It's just kind of poetic. You just say, like, go get, put on your nice clothes, right? In, in an ancient world of, of clean linen being your best garment, he's just saying, go put on your nice outfit, um, put oil on your head. Again, we don't always use oil. It's kind of making a comeback here with the essential oil movement, right? Uh, but whenever you read oil in the Bible, you just, just substitute perfume, shampoo, or lotion, okay? Like, it's, it's one of those three things generally, and so that's what he's saying. He's like, practice hygiene. Don't be depressed because of this death and this pain in the world, but clean yourself up. Shave, get a haircut, put on a nice outfit, go have a good meal, right? He talks about enjoying the wife of your youth. Again, you can, you can enjoy your spouse, you can enjoy your friends. Again, you don't take this hyper literally like, oh, we've all got to go out and get married now, right? Like you can be single and live a good life. The Bible's clear about that. He's just saying enjoy the normal good things in life. And it may not be list by list, piece by piece, you're enjoying all these things. He's just saying live a life of joy, enjoying the portion that God has given to you. He goes on because life is fleeting, and he's going to get really hard on the whole sneaky thing, right? Like, you don't, you don't know when death is going to come. So that, that adds a sense of urgency to it. Verse 10, whatever your hands find to do, do with all your strength, because there's no work, planning, knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol, where you are going. Sheol is the Hebrew word for the place of the dead. And more often than not, it, it connotes the idea of just being in the grave, being in the ground. It's not like a one-to-one correspondence with, like, hell. Um, it kind of is just generally death. And so here, again, because of his physical focus, the way he's talking, the way he's building this argument, talking about the physical life that we live, he's saying you, you can't enjoy life when you're riding in the ground. You can only enjoy life while you're still living. So, so take advantage of the moments you have. Death is coming, and it's going to sneak up on you. It's going to surprise you. So rejoice in whatever God's given you, because you've just got a moment, right? Chavel, it's a, it's a vapor, it's a mist. It's just going to be over like that. So rejoice in God's grace. Verse 11, again, I saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong or bread to the wise or riches to the discerning or favor to the skillful. Rather, time and chance happened to all of them. The field is not level. It's not fair. If you're the fastest one, that doesn't mean you're going to win. But, but what is he saying? He's saying go race anyway. Go run anyway. Rejoice. You may not win the race, but go run. Just enjoy running, right? Enjoy engaging in life, verse 12, for certainly no one knows his time. Like fish caught in a cruel net or like birds caught in a trap. So people are trapped in an evil time as it suddenly falls on them. So it's like an animal in a trap. We had neighbors catch a possum in a trap. Uh, when our kids were little, they came over to show us because uh, they thought, you know, we've got kids. We'd love to see it. Possums stink really bad. I don't know if you knew that. They smell just weird. It was gross. I was telling the story this morning. My wife like got a shiver as she was remembering the smell. Um, but he's saying we're like a wild animal getting caught in a trap, and we have no idea when that's going to happen. It sneaks up on us, right? Like animals don't go into traps on purpose. None of us do that on purpose. Death is just going to like come on us. It's going to be all of a sudden, and we never know when it's going to happen. So are you living now well, knowing that death is sneaky? It's going to sneak up on you. You can't schedule it. I was listening to a podcast the other day. A guy was trying to practice my point one, death is universal, so we're all going to die. So he was trying to practice that knowledge and live in light of that by scheduling his death on his calendar and just saying, well, you know, based on my health and my ethnicity and my, you know, all these factors, all my approximate date of death will be, you know, when I'm 70, whatever. And he marked it on his calendar and started doing a backwards clock of I've got this much time left. And great idea but Solomon, Solomon would agree with that in point one, right? And then now in point two, he's saying, but you know what? You might die tomorrow, right? <laughs> like it doesn't, you're not guaranteed your full lifespan. You're not guaranteed a, a full, healthy life. You never know what's going to happen. It seems unfair. It's going to sneak up on you. So again, so rejoice. Verse seven, rejoice. That's that underlying theme he keeps coming back to. What does fearing God and keeping his commandments look like? It looks like rejoicing in your, in your daily life, enjoying the good things that God gives you, not going off the deep end into just a wild life of parting, right? And he's going to come to this next, but rejoicing in the little things. So last point is that death is apocalyptic. And apocalyptic is a big word for the end of the world. It's the Greek word for revelation. And so we think about the revelation in the Bible as like the end times. And so the idea here 
he uses poetry and he kind of paints this picture and says, as you grow old, it's like your own personal zombie apocalypse that we all get to go through, right? And so like we all get to, to kind of enjoy our own personal end of the world experience. And again, I know it's, it's very negative, but he's trying to say, yeah, that it really is bad. Don't be the weird kind of Christian that's like, I believe in Jesus, therefore death and tragedy and sickness is okay and it's a blessing. No, it's still, it's still bad, but we can rejoice through that. We can rejoice despite the bad things that we go through. So look at chapter 11, verse 7. I'm skipping over, again, apologize, skipping over all this great stuff in the end of chapter 9, all of chapter 10. A lot of it are kind of one-off proverbs, you know, they're just kind of one little soundbite proverbs. But as you go back and read those, you'll see a lot of them still connect in with the major themes, but I'm trying to stay with the kind of main passages that are talking about this theme of joy in spite of death. So 11, verse 7, we'll pick up. Light is sweet, and it is pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. Uh, I love Central Texas in the fall and in the winter. I, I don't like it that much in the summer, but I like it in the fall and in the winter. We have these days when we go outside, and it's just like cool and sunny and beautiful, right? Not, not right now, but we have these days. You never know when they're going to come, and you have to enjoy them because light is sweet, and it's pleasing for the eyes to see the sun. It's just nice to be outside on a beautiful, sunny day. He goes on and says, Indeed, if someone lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. Let him remember the days of darkness, since they will be many. All that comes is futile or vanity. That's that theme word we keep coming back to. So he's saying, you're going to have good days. You're going to have bad days. You're going to have days you enjoy. You're going to have days where you are sick and facing death. Rejoice. Rejoice in whatever God gives you. Verse 9, rejoice, young person, while you are young, and let your heart be glad in the days of your youth, and walk in the ways of your heart and in the desires of your eyes, but know that for all of these things, God will bring you to judgment. That's the railing, right? It's the railing guarding us against full-on pagan hedonism. This is a kind of Christian hedonism of like, enjoy the good things that God gives you. Rejoice in, in the lot that he's given to you. You've got ice cream in the freezer, eat the ice cream, right? If you've got the white outfit, put on the white outfit. If you've got the oil, put it on your hair. He's saying, enjoy the good things in life. If you're young, enjoy your youngness. If you're young and strong and you can do young, strong things, that's great. Go for it, right? Those of us that are getting older, we can do less and less of that. And, and we miss being young and strong. So enjoy it. Take advantage of it while you have it. Rejoice in these things. But remember, God will judge you, right? <laughs> He's saying, don't forget, judgment is coming, so don't fall off the cliff into complete indulgence. Verse 10, remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. So another way I would say this verse 10 is don't pursue pain and suffering thinking that that's somehow like super spiritual, right? If you're young and you have the opportunity to enjoy a good life that's somewhat pain-free and there is no cancer and, you know, your joints still work, enjoy it, right? Like, don't beat yourself up about that. And so that's an important balance because we have this cult of youth that idolizes youth and vitality, and so we could see that and say, that's wrong. They're making a false savior out of youth and strength and vigor. But we can swing to the other side to this kind of false religiosity where we're like, that's all evil. We're just going to be, we're going to be tough and not have fun, right? And we're not going to enjoy our youth and we're not going to enjoy good things. There's this phrase, uh, a spiritual phrase called asceticism. It's A-S-C-E-T, asceticism. Um, and what it is, is it's when you think through harsh treatment of your body, you can somehow earn spiritual favor with God. And Colossians condemns that. The scripture, I think, condemns that. But it's easy to mix that up with just discipline. Discipline is good, but hurting yourself to try to somehow curry favor spiritually or impress God is not good. Those are two different things. Um, and so we would say like fasting, spiritual discipline. You're, you're containing yourself. You're, you're living in moderation. Or you might be going without a good thing for a temporary period of time just to focus yourself in prayer and communion. But you're not fasting, Christian fasting at least. I don't know about pagan fasting. Christian fasting is not like trying to beat yourself up and trying to make yourself miserable, right? That's not what it is. It's a short time, temporary discipline where you're trying to focus on the Lord and enjoy him. You're just kind of trying to focus yourself, right? That's different than asceticism, where you're like, I'm going to really be harsh on myself. I'm going to hurt myself. I'm going I'm to just be tough. 
and make myself miserable, and then God's going to have to bless me because I've mistreated, my, you know, I've whipped myself or whatever. There's metaphorical ways. There's emotional asceticism as well as physical asceticism, right? You try to beat yourself up and think that's somehow more spiritual. Well, this is what the Scripture has to say to you. Remove sorrow from your heart and put away pain from your flesh because youth and the prime of life are fleeting. Saying enjoy, enjoy the good life while you can. Enjoy as much of it as possible. Don't enjoy it so much that you make it a god, right? Not the cult of youth that so much of our culture is falling into right now. But also don't go to the other extreme where you make a cult of your own spirituality and, and harshness on yourself. So chapter 12, verse 1, he reiterates this. So remember your creator in the days of your youth before the days of adversity come. One of the concepts you can think about is, is as you learn to be spiritual while life is easy, that'll aid you when life gets harder. Life is only going to get harder as you get older. And the more you learn to trust Jesus with your abundance and your strength, the better you will be at trusting Jesus when you are weak and getting more frail. So he's going to start talking about that process of getting frail. It says, before the days of adversity come and the years approach when you will say, I have no delight in them, Right? There's some days, you, you, I don't know if you know any older people like this, but some days older people get up and say, I have no delight in this day, right? This is just a hard day. I just want this day to be over with. Um, I struggle myself with uh, sometimes a bent towards depression, right? I have those times where I'm just like, I just don't really feel happy about anything, right? And he's saying it's our job to discipline ourselves to rejoice when things are good so that we're better at rejoicing when, when things are bad and it's harder to rejoice, Verse 2, he says, before the sun and the light are darkened and the moon and the stars and the clouds return after the rain. On the day when the guardians of the house tremble and the strong men stoop, the women who grind grain cease because they are few, and the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. So he's using this like stars and heavenly bodies and like things ceasing, and it's kind of the city closing down, right? The light's not shining anymore, right? Before things get bad, enjoy God's goodness before things get really bad. So again, he's using this apocalyptic imagery of like the city shutting down. And he's going to start saying, this is, this is what we're all going to go through. We're all personally going to go through this experience where our city, our house shuts down. He uses the metaphor of um, the ones who watch through the windows see dimly. Uh, I'm uh, mid-40s now and that's happening. My windows aren't working as well, right? Like I'm seeing more dimly through the windows. They're just, they're just not working as well as they used to. It's really weird to have... One eye I can see better far away, and one eye I can see farther close up, so I get kind of confused about that sometimes. Um, he's going to go on and use a bunch of other poetic language. He says, verse 4, the doors of the street are shut while the sound of the mill fades. Um, so this is kind of the, like the factory closed down. Any of you ever had a, like a hometown where there was a factory, everybody worked there, but then the factory closed down, and like the city just fell apart? You've seen that? Maybe it wasn't your hometown, maybe it was a friend of yours or a relative. And that's, that's the kind of poetic language he's giving for the, for the body aging. It's like the factory closed down. Sound of the mill fades. And then he says, when one rises at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of song grow faint. This is one of the tensions of growing old. He's like, there's this irony. Um, you can't hear well enough to enjoy the daughters of song, right? You can't hear the music anymore. But just a little chirping bird will wake you up in the middle of the night because <laughs> you can't sleep anymore either, right? So it's this tension that you live with. It says in verse 5, also they're afraid of heights and dangers on the road. The almond tree blossoms. Uh, the almond tree, commentators say, I've never seen an almond tree, but commentaries say that they, they blossom silver and gray. It's kind of a silver and gray blossom. And so it's talking about getting gray hair. If y'all want to inspect, my wife inspects. I've got some back here. You can come and check it out. I'm getting them right back here on this side. Um, but that's a natural part of aging for a lot of people. Not everybody gets gray hair, but it's a normal thing that people go through. Uh, the grasshopper loses its spring. Does it say grasshopper in the ESV? There's a couple of these words that were different. I think grasshopper is in the ESV. So I think in general, who knows all that he's getting into here. So he could be getting into some weird stuff. But I think just in general, we could say you lose your springiness, right? Like you just can't jump like you used to. Uh, and then the ESV, I know where it says caperberry, in my translation, it says desire loses its effect. Here, it's, the literal is caperberry. The caperberry um, has no effect. Um, it's a stimulant. Uh, so some people think it's actually like an aphrodisiac, but in most places, I think they would say it's more just like any general stimulant. It's like, it's like the coffee loses its effect, right? Like when you get older, um, the coffee bean's not working for you anymore, right? 
like the energy drink. I used to drink an energy drink and I'd be good for the rest of the day. Now I have to take a nap and I eat dinner at 4 p.m. at Luby's, right? Like that's the, uh, the transition that we go through. It says, for the mere mortal is headed to his eternal home and mourners will walk around in the street. Then verse 6, he uses several images that, again, people that interpret this are kind of argue about what it means specifically, but I'd say we can see for sure a generality of beautiful things breaking down. So he kind of lists different beautiful kind of household implements and tools. He says, before the silver cord is snapped and the gold bowl is broken and the jar is shattered at the spring and the wheel is broken into the well. So all just images of things just breaking down. Beautiful things, shattering, not working anymore. And the dust returns to the earth as it once was, and the spirit returns to the God who gave it. And he ends in verse 8, absolute futility or vanity, says the teacher, everything. Everything is futile. Life is, life is ending. Death is coming. Again, chapter 9, verse 7, he said, so rejoice in whatever God has given you because he's already accepted you. So first, we've got to start there. Are you in a spiritual place where you are ready to die? If the bus hits you tomorrow, do you know that God has accepted you in Christ? As Christians, we don't gather to worship him because we think we've done enough to earn a free pass beyond death. We believe it was gifted to us in Christ. I said, so do you have that confidence so that you can apply what he's saying in chapter 11 and 12, where he says, so rejoice in your youth, whatever little bit of youth you have left, right? Like some of us have more, some of us have less. What little drops of youth do you have? What strength do you have today? What joy do you have today to rejoice in as a gift from God? Because he is saying, honestly, it's going to be less and less. And some of us will fade quickly. Some of us will fade slowly, but we are to rejoice in whatever drops we have left. We are to rejoice in whatever little pieces of life he gives us because he's good. He told us in, in chapter 9, verse 1, our life is in his hands. Told us in chapter 9, verse 7, you're accepted. He accepts your works. He's a redeeming, gracious God. So he's saying rejoice in the face of death. It's going to feel like the end of the world because it is the end of, of our little world right? Like our little world, our body will end. Now again, he's referenced throughout this book that there's more. There's more beyond this. There is an afterlife, but he really wants us to come to terms with this life. What are you going to do with this life? How are you going to live this life with joy and reverence towards God to make the most of the situation that you've been given? Um, Pompeii is a famous picture of, of judgment. It's also a great song by Bastille that I recommend to you all. Um, but the actual place is a place in Italy where a volcano erupted and it just kind of froze the city in time. So uh, it's like, a, I think, one of these world historic type places. Um, also, I think, I think it's also kind of just because of the weather as well, mild weather and, and sea air and stuff like that. But it's just this perfectly preserved picture of daily life and it just kind of got flash frozen in the lava when this volcano exploded and so throughout history it's been used in poetry and song and movies and all kinds of stories as a as a picture of judgment as a picture of the Bastille song it's like a picture of the end of the world and the question is what are you going to do with the end of your world what are you going to do with death what are you going to do with that tragedy that will befall all of us. Jesus is very clear. Romans 5 compares the life that we're given in Jesus and the death that we're given in Adam. We're all of one race. We're all of the race of Adam. And we have the opportunity by adoption and by faith to be in the race of Christ, our big brother Jesus, who gave his life for us. And so with the coming apocalypse, with your own personal end of the world, what are you trusting in? The movie Run, Lola, Run is a fascinating movie because I, I think I mentioned this at the beginning. It's, there's this kind of reset that keeps happening, like an infinite game, like a, a video game where she, she runs the course and doesn't work out, and then she like starts all over again, and then she runs the course again. She seems to be learning throughout the course as the movie kind of starts over and over and over again. There's a surprise death. Oh, that was terrible. All right, let's start over again. You know, it's like in a video game where you get multiple lives. Solomon 
Psalm is telling us we don't, we don't get multiple lives. So bad news, you don't get to learn and start over again and start over again and start over again. But the good news is, even if you don't get to be Lola and learn from your mistakes and start over again, Jesus ran the race for you. Jesus won the victory already on our behalf. And so Romans 12 says, so run your race with joy because Jesus already ran that race with joy. For the joy that was set before him, he ran the race for you. He despised the shame of the cross, but he was willing to face that death for you and for me. And so the, the author to Hebrews says, we can, we can do that. He says this in Hebrews 12 too. We can run our race. We can throw off the sin that entangles us, right? Where he's going at the end of this book, next week he's going to say, so fear God and obey him, right? We can actually obey him because we see Jesus running ahead of us. He's run the race before us. We won't run perfectly, and the course won't be fair, right? There are going to be holes on that track that we're probably going to break our ankles on. But he says, keep running, because Jesus has finished the course for you. And Hebrews 12, 2 says, keep your eyes on Jesus, the source, the perfecter of your faith. For the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God. The Run, Lola, Run movie is really interesting because she's this kind of overcomer. But if you dig deeper, there's some like little surprise Easter eggs in the movie. I don't think the guy that made the movie was a Christian by any means, but there's this little like, these little hints that even her overcoming was not enough. There are like little gifts of grace throughout the movie that change the course of her story. The gospel says it's a huge gift of grace. Jesus ran the race for you, so run with joy. Let me pray. God, thank you for the love that you have for us in Christ. We pray that you would strengthen us to run our race. God, we are scared so often. Help us not to be the ones that cringe in fear because we're waiting for the other shoe to drop. We're waiting for the bad thing to happen. Um, you've told us bad things are going to happen. And we've lived it. Bad things already have happened. So God, help us to run our race with joy. Help us to persevere, to trust you, to enjoy the good things you give us. We admit some days it's easier than others. Help us to receive all of our days as a gift from your hand. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.